Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, as the COVID crisis intensifies in our state, what it's like to live in a community where the local hospital has shut down. We have no hospital, period. It's it's gone. Something like that happens, where am I going to go? And what lessons can we learn from another pandemic that felt mysterious and overwhelming at the time? The AIDS crisis. We didn't have even hope. And these were young people. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. The COVID crisis is amplifying so many disparities in our state, including access to health care. We can really see the inequities in our system with a wave of clinic and hospital closures over the last few years that's eroded the health care safety net for so many low-income communities of color here in California. I felt like we was operating on a diabetic patient who lost his toe, and then the toe became the second toe, and then it became a transmetatarsal amputation of the foot, and then before you know it, the ankle was gone, the knee was gone, and now the leg is gone. Now the leg is gone. That's a clip from a documentary called The Desert that's just out as part of Truly California, the television documentary series produced here at KQED, home of the California Report. The film looks at the ripple effects after Doctors Medical Center in Contra Costa County closed five years ago. It operated for some 60 years in the Bay Area, which as we know is one of the wealthiest communities in the nation. But when it closed, it left about 250,000 mostly low-income residents more than a half-hour drive away from a hospital. The film was produced and directed by Bo Kovitz, who joins us now. Thank you for having me. So tell us, what inspired you to want to make this film and tell this story even before COVID-19 hit and, you know, we see so many healthcare disparities amplified? I thought, well, what does it look like to live in a community where there isn't a hospital? What does that really feel like? I approach this wanting the doctors, the frontline workers, the patients who had been crying for years before the hospital closed and since the hospital closed about what the tragedy was, but were never quite heard. And I wanted them to drive the story. I wanted them to be the storytellers. Part of your film follows patients who are bearing the burden of having to find a new hospital to go to now that Doctors is closed. I'm thinking of Epigmenio and Angelica, who are a couple. They're both battling cancer. And now they have to travel two hours on three different buses to get to the nearest hospital in Martinez. There's a great scene where we can hear Epigmenio at the bus stop talking on the phone with somebody about his journey. 
Aquí me dijo que vamos a Martínez al hospital. ¿Qué ¿Bien? Sí, sí, un chequeo cada mes, aunque está saliendo ahora. For them, this trip is an absolute necessity, but it's something that they have to plan their entire day around. And it's something where they are winded by the time they even show up to their appointment. And, you know, by the end of the film, the sun is already set and it's a full day trip. And they know that they have to do it. They've talked a lot about how there's no other option and this is their, this is how they survive. You also follow people who used to work at the hospital, like Millie Callen. She now works at an urgent care clinic staffed by former employees across the street from the site of the former hospital. Now they're serving the same population with just a quarter of the staff. And you don't want to take any chances. I mean, she's going to need... And they told me they were sending somebody upstairs... Millie worked at the hospital doctor's medical center for more than a decade. She was one of the coordinators in the ER, which is one of the most, I think, important roles that, you know, isn't the doctor, isn't the nurse. She's making sure that everything's moving along smoothly, bringing people in, bouncing them to their doctors, making sure their insurance is covered. All of that is still happening at the urgent care. Now it's gotten much busier because with the spike of COVID-19 cases, you know, lifelong urgent care, the urgent care where Millie works, was for a long time one of the only and few locations that were doing COVID-19 testing. So not only were they answering a lot of patients who would ordinarily go to the urgent care thinking it was an ER or, you know, needing primary care. She was also dealing with an additional load of patients who were experiencing or showing symptoms of COVID-19. And then there's that added stress of, well, how do we sort of sequester that person away from the rest of our patients? And Millie is also caring for her elderly mom who has a heart condition. Now, we have no hospital, period. It's, it's gone. And her anxiety is, something like that happens, where am I going to go? One of the paramedics that I had the opportunity to film with is Amy Skaggs, and she has been a paramedic in the community for years. She was, she was around when Doctor's Hospital was there. Amy describes something that I think is unique to low-income communities where 911 calls are really treated as primary care. That we're going to have to wean through all of the financial issues that they constantly bring up to us. I don't have the money for a taxi to come back. I don't, how am I going to get home? I don't have any family. It is so difficult to try to make what we feel is the right decision for the patient when you have all of that thrown at you as well. So, you know, she has a really hard job, a really hard job. You know, I thought it was so interesting to see that so many of the firefighters you talk to spend most of their time dealing with healthcare calls, not fires. There isn't a Richmond paramedic company. There's not a West County paramedic company. So the firefighters take on the role of being the first to arrive on scene. So one of the firefighters um, in the film, Trevor Rogers, is a firefighter who is trained as a medic. And so he can do what's called basic life support. Go ahead and just relax. Look at me. Open up. 
So, you know, firefighters can get on scene, but they're limited in what they can do because in certain advanced or complicated cases, the ambulance and the paramedics are the ones who need to show up and then transport the person and have that specialty training. Trevor also talks about the impact that this has on their job when paramedics are forced to transport patients outside of West County. If we happen to have three calls and there are three critical patients that need critical care, now you have three ambulances that are outside of our city. And that essentially depletes the city of our resources. You get better, Alice. You're welcome. And when there are times of the day where those highways are really, really congested, there, you know, wait times for the paramedics to show up can be 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, depending on the day. And of course, they don't have Doctors Hospital open to shoulder the burden for COVID care as cases spike. Right. Right. There's, I, you know, I think there's a concern about capacity. You know, I've, I talked to the medical director and the ambulatory medical director at the county hospital in Martinez, which is the only safety net hospital left at this point in the county. And they, you know, describe the concern that many people, especially those with chronic illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, asthma, all these folks that may not be getting seen for illnesses that need to be managed right now. We may never know how many people may have died that did not seek emergency care or did not seek health care because they were afraid of getting exposed. Because when doctors closed, a lot of trust was lost in the community, a, a community that has historically been marginalized from the healthcare system now feels further marginalization because they lost a resource, they lost an institution that represented a lot of trust in the system. Is this issue of hospital closures playing out elsewhere in the state? There are more hospital closures that are happening in California, but they're mostly in rural communities. So I think Doctors Hospital is representing a trend that is accelerating in urban communities where certain regions that are concentrated areas for Medi-Cal, Medicare, or uninsured patients are losing hospitals because hospitals and ERs are trying to consolidate in urban centers where there are more privately insured patients. It's really foreboding given that we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are going to need medical care more than ever. I spoke about this with the um, ambulatory director at county, the county hospital in Martinez, Dr. Gabriela Sullivan. And she says that healthcare is often left with the job of trying to plug all these holes that are in the social fabric of our country. And she says that if we are trying to leave these issues, social issues on the doorstep of healthcare, that's a recipe for failure. A lot of people in the years leading up to the hospital's closure have said that it will take a public health crisis of extreme proportions to reveal how essential doctor's hospital and other safety net hospitals are. I think with this pandemic and how, you know, it's not just that disproportionately, you know, 
black and brown communities are dying and are more impacted. There's also going to be a downstream of increasing morbidity and mortality for years to come. There, there's a real worry that they're holding back the dams right now in terms of acute care and that the realities of the disparity are going to last far beyond this pandemic. Bo Kovitz is the director of the documentary The Desert. You can find a link to all the Truly California films at kqed.org slash trulyca. you a couple of stories from our science and health reporters who've been looking at some of the parallels between the AIDS pandemic and our current coronavirus crisis. We're going to start with KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg, who talked to HIV survivors about what it's been like to live through two deadly outbreaks. Forty years ago, Rick Solomon moved to San Francisco from Texas. Great timing. I moved out here December of 80, just in time. Six months later, researchers published the first accounts of what they called gay men's pneumonia. The news hit during a wild era. A lot of sex, a lot of drugs. I mean, you you could have sex full time. Solomon, a 65-year-old with thick salt-and-pepper hair, frequented the bathhouses regularly. He danced at clubs in the Castro till sunrise, dressed in flannel shirts and Converse high tops. Particular songs, let's see. ABBA, Dancing Queen was a good one. But the party stopped as people all around Solomon started getting sick. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Nobody knew anything. And it just, it was really scary. Initially, the media called the disease GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. That didn't change until a year into the outbreak. The moment is illustrated in the movie, and the band played on. We have enough people hating gays without having the entire stigma of this disease placed on us, especially since it has been shown that this disease is no longer merely gay-related. Now, I make a motion to officially call this disease Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. For a couple years, researchers didn't know how AIDS was transmitted, whether it was coughing, holding hands, a toilet seat. You know, you'd go out in the street at night and no one would be there and the bars were were almost empty and, and no, people didn't go out. Scientists struggled to get funding to study the disease. It wasn't until 1987, six years into the epidemic, that President Ronald Reagan gave his first major speech on AIDS. I've asked the Department of Health and Human Services to determine as soon as possible the extent to which the AIDS virus has penetrated our society and to predict its future dimensions. At the time, AIDS had killed tens of thousands of Americans. Patients and advocates appalled by the lack of government attention hit the streets. We had battles to fight. Storm the NIH! This is war! We were fighting for our lives, literally. As the years passed, Solomon kept a little notebook of names of people who died. And it's about 200 names long. He wasn't surprised when he tested positive in 1990. 
However, positive test results surprised others. I arrived in USA in 1984, and uh, I wasn't jumping from bed to bed. I promise, nothing wrong with it, but I wasn't. Soon after Jesus Gayen crossed the Mexican border into California, he fell in love. I was just with one person, and, and, and sadly, he died one year later. Today, the 65-year-old with spiky platinum hair and a turquoise earring is a proud activist. But when he found out he was HIV positive, he didn't tell anyone. In those times, they were not allowing people who were HIV positive to stay in this country. It was more than just the fear of deportation that silenced Guyen. In 1985, a Los Angeles Times poll revealed a majority of Americans favored quarantining people with AIDS. We got the social distancing through discrimination, through stigma, through homophobia, through all those things. We got the real social distancing. At the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, memories from this era flooded back. Guyane remembers one particular conversation in early March. A cruise ship carrying passengers with COVID-19 was docking at the port of Oakland. He overheard a woman on the street say, Why do they allow them to be right there in Oakland? They should be taking these people to an island. And that took me back so much to the early 80s with HIV. People wanted also just to put us in cages or in places completely separate. And there are other similarities between this pandemic and the AIDS crisis. Right now, with COVID-19, the information changes every day. Every day, it keeps changing. With HIV, it was the same. Things kept changing. Results from small studies are overblown. Headlines tout new cures. Vaccines are coming. Do you have any idea how many times we have read that about HIV? 40 years. AIDS has killed more than 700,000 people in America. Fortunately, new treatments are keeping Guyenne and others alive. Deaths have fallen significantly since the peak. But new drugs took a long time and illustrate a distinct difference between the two plagues. In many ways, there's no comparison again because in those days... The reality is that society in general didn't care. Unlike the 80s, when patients begged the government to do more, today some people protest because they want officials to do less. As things open up, Ian worries he's at high risk for the coronavirus. But fortunately so far, COVID-19 is not devastating the HIV community like so many doctors feared. They aren't sure why. The bottom line is we have no idea. Stephen Deeks is an HIV researcher at UCSF. The data are a mess. They go in multiple different directions. A lot of it's conceptual, a lot of it's theoretical. Some experts theorize daily HIV meds may offer some protection against the coronavirus. Others wonder if the immune system of HIV patients is altered in some way that offers resilience. Or maybe experience helps. I am pretty sure that my patients, my older primarily gay men who survived the 80s and the 90s, were the first to effectively shelter in place because they know what a pandemic is. They know how a virus can ravage a community. They know how to basically how important social distancing is. In other words, public health lessons learned during the AIDS crisis are likely saving lives today. For the California Report magazine, I'm Leslie McClurg.
while gay activists marched and demanded the government invest more in AIDS research back in the 1980s and 90s, there were some forms of government help the gay community did not want. Contact tracing, which was used by public health officials to contain the spread of the virus, was very controversial during the AIDS era. Similar tensions around it are arising now that it's a key pillar of California's strategy for containing the coronavirus. Governor Newsom says 20,000 people will be hired as contact tracers in the state in the next couple of months. The California Report's health correspondent April Demboski explains we've got a lot to learn from the past experience of veteran contact tracers. In 1968, John Potterat finished his tour of duty in Vietnam and came home to L.A., where syphilis was rampant. He started working for the CDC in what became a 40-year career as a contact tracer. In a given day, I would be in the clinic for two or three hours. I would interview one or two people, and then I would go out in the field and drive around and locate the people that had been named. Tracking down sexual contacts in the free love era required private eye skills, A lot of people infected with an STD didn't know the names of the people they slept with. As an example, there is somebody who works in a deli on South Broadway. But they don't remember the name of the deli either. But they know that it's the only deli in that neighborhood that doesn't serve breakfast. So Potterat drives up and down Broadway until he finds it, then leaves a note for an employee with a thick brown mustache and scorpion tattoo on his bicep. A day later, the person calls. He was located and he was tested. Turned out that he was positive. In the 70s, when gonorrhea took center stage, Potterat moved on to a new contact tracing job in Colorado. He sat at his desk in his paisley shirt, clashing paisley tie, and shag haircut, working the phones. Then at night, he tracked people down at the biker bars and gay bars, where Giorgio Moroder was always playing. We would spend time there. It's sort of a see-and-be-seen type of uh, approach. And we gained that trust through the 70s. But everything changed with AIDS. A new virus arrived in the 80s, and it wouldn't go away with a round of antibiotics. There was no test for AIDS. We don't have a test. There was no treatment. We don't have treatment. And it was 100% fatal. The health department felt pretty helpless contact tracers were in a moral quandary. Many felt it was unethical to tell someone they might have been exposed. What did we have to offer these people? We didn't have even hope. And these were young people. How do you tell a 23-year-old you might have two years to live? And here I am working for a medical clinic. There's not a damn thing I can do about it. But just a couple years later, Potterat concluded that was a mistake. They could have at least educated people and stopped them from spreading the virus further. Eventually, they traced HIV infections back to the origin of the epidemic in Colorado Springs. And if you had done that in real time, do you think it would have made a difference in the course of how it spread? I think that had we had the courage and the conviction to go ahead and do that and go visit these people, we could have saved several people. I don't know, a dozen, 20. So I still feel... When you mention something like that, you make me feel guilty, and you should, because on some level I failed. I made up for it later, but failure is failure. 
But the gay community did not share Potterat's enthusiasm for contact tracing. As AIDS spreads, so does the debate over who should be tested and who should know the results. Even when a test was developed, and even when the first antiretrovirals came out, gay advocates in San Francisco were opposed to contact tracing. They were afraid what would happen if local governments collected a list of gay men. In 1987, gay rights lawyer Ben Schatz warned of discrimination, lost jobs, lost housing. If we create public health measures which are doomed to scare people into avoiding public health departments, nobody gains and the epidemic spreads. Schatz and other advocates said public education was the way to go, not naming names. People have to be able to protect themselves. If they think that the state is going to swoop in and say, your sexual partner has AIDS, then they're just going to continue burying their head in the sand. Some epidemiologists thought the money needed for contact tracing would be better spent on other things. Dr. George Rutherford led the CDC's AIDS response in San Francisco at the time. He's a professor at UCSF now. A lot of my thinking about contact tracing back in those days was, well, what exactly is it supposed to add? We've already told every single gay man they're at high risk and they should get tested. But at the time, uh, you know, the answer was nothing. In smaller places like Colorado, where Potterat worked, they could do it. But in San Francisco, where a third of the population was infected, Rutherford says it wasn't cost-effective. Now, with you know, much better drugs, it's become a much more standard, part of a standard operating procedure for any AIDS control programs. Now, veterans like Rutherford are relying on lessons learned in the AIDS era to build the state's new core of coronavirus contact tracers. Hello, this is Lisa Fagundis. It is June 30th. Just finished another team lead shift. We had a lot, like 20 pages of contacts. It's just getting crazy busy. Today, it's Latino immigrant communities who are disproportionately impacted by COVID. But the mistrust and fears of discrimination are the same. Lost jobs, lost housing, and now getting deported. People are a little hesitant. Much like gay men, we're hesitant to get on a, a list of gay men. It makes doing the work very difficult because they're a lot more curt and and resistant or suspicious or scared and upset. For contact tracers to overcome the mistrust, they need backup. They need a leader with a unifying message, us against the virus. But the president today, just like the president in the 80s, is doing the opposite. COVID or HIV, pretending that it wasn't there or that it would go away. John Potterat remembers how Ronald Reagan alienated the gay community by ignoring AIDS. Now he sees Donald Trump alienating the communities of color most impacted by COVID. Well, if it doesn't go away well, it's not affecting people that are really, really very important. The results are the same. Without a coordinated national strategy to combat the virus, history will repeat itself. The epidemic will spread and more people will die. For The California Report... I'm April Dimboski. Next week on the California Report magazine, we're going to go back in time to learn how Chicano activists occupied Catalina Island nearly 50 years ago. They were demanding that unused land on the island be turned into housing. And they argued Catalina was never explicitly handed over to the U.S. in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. In other words, these islands do not belong to the United States. These islands are Mexican territories. These islands belong to the Mexicans. Tune in next week for that story. And hey, if you like the kinds of stories we bring you here on the California Report magazine, we're looking for listeners like you to participate in a short survey 
so we can learn more about what you'd like to hear on the show. You can help us out by visiting kqed.org slash survey. That's kqed.org slash survey. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Amanda Font is our director. Rob Spade is our technical producer. And we had additional engineering from Seal Muller and Katie McMurrin. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. And our team also includes Erica Kelly, Polly Stryker, Asala Sanapur, and Ariella Markowitz. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the earth needs a good lawyer. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing, through science, the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.